This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, welcome to Health Check. I'm Joyce Teo, a senior health correspondent with The Straits Times. I'll be continuing my conversation with Dr. Andrew Ong, a consultant gastroenterologist with the Singapore General Hospital, on what exactly is irritable bowel syndrome and what you can do about it. IBS or irritable bowel syndrome is a common gut problem that causes chronic relapsing symptoms such as abdominal pain, bloating, wind, diarrhea, constipation. So in this episode, Dr. Ong talks about what foods you may want to avoid if you have IBS, as well as the difference between food intolerance and food allergy. Dr. Ong has worked and trained in Monash University, which invented the world-famous low-FODMAP diet, which is used to manage the symptoms of people with IBS, and will therefore also discuss this diet. FODMAP refers to fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. These are a collection of short-chain carbohydrates that are absorbed poorly in the gut, which can then trigger symptoms in those with IBS. But first, find out from him why the bloating or diarrhea that you experienced after a meal may have nothing to do with the type of food that you have just consumed. Okay, so diet is one of the first few things that people will try to alter when they have symptoms. And it also makes them very upset when they eat and they are having problems after the meal because food is life to many Singaporeans. So they try to find a a cause and effect mechanism between what they eat and what symptoms they get, which is often very challenging because... The symptoms you get with food may not appear straight away. If you eat certain foods and the symptoms come on within minutes, it may not be the actual substance within the food, but actually the act of stretching your stomach because of the food. And therefore, whatever you eat would not have made a difference. So we have to think about the mechanisms slightly differently based on what you eat and when the symptoms appear. So patients often ask us, what can I eat and what can I not eat? And it's a very challenging question because there is no one formula that fits everybody. But there are some diets that seem to have a scientific basis to what they're trying to do. So an example would be the low FODMAP diet from Australia. The principle is that there is a bunch of carbohydrates that just don't get absorbed and they're very different. For example, garlic is in that list. Onions are in that list. Beans are in that list. Cauliflower and artichokes are in that list. But they all work in slightly different ways to cause symptoms. And it's very difficult at times to really hunt down the item that's causing the symptoms. And often, if we are really interested in doing this, we get the patient to restrict everything first and then slowly reintroduce group by group back. Because we don't want a patient to develop an eating disorder because the food can become your enemy at some point when you are trying to restrict too many things, right? So there are many interesting ways to overcome the problem. Like, for example, in milk, when people come in talking about dairy products, what people don't understand as well is that what you eat in terms of your dairy products, may make a difference. So if you drink a glass of fresh milk, you will have symptoms if you have a a problem digesting lactose. But if you take cheese, for example, especially hard cheese compared to soft cheese, you may not get any symptoms. The question is why? Because inside cheese, you have bacteria that's already present. And that bacteria can produce some enzymes. And so you actually have enzymes digesting the cheese as you ingest the cheese. And therefore, your symptoms don't appear. Likewise, if you have a bowl of cereal with fresh milk, you may not get the same symptoms because having a solid meal slows down the way the milk is released into your small intestine from the stomach because your stomach empties itself based on how much calories you take and how solid the meal is. So if you have a lot of oats with your milk, you may not get any symptoms because your oats are actually stretching your stomach and slowing down the release of the milk into your small intestine. 
I see. But actually, I wanted to ask you about this since we're talking about food, right? When we talk about the gut, foods such as, say, kimchi and yogurt, they're supposed to be good for the body, right? But some people, especially with yogurt, they just have to go to the loo after that. It can work both ways. I think kimchi is, uh, at least the traditional types of kimchi that I'm aware of, is made up of cabbage and, and some spicy paste. And these things are generally not helpful for our patients with a sensitive gut because the cabbage causes a lot of bloating. The spicy paste will cause a lot of contractions of the intestines. And, and so it might make your symptoms worse. Uh, but what's interesting to know is that your pain receptors in your body there are also the similar receptors to ones detecting the spicy taste, right? And, and therefore, patients who have a long history of eating spicy food, they have sensitized their gut so much that their threshold to pain is a lot better than a normal person. So if someone has been eating chili since young, I think there's a reasonable chance that they have less problems with gut issues in the future. I'm not saying that you should introduce chili to your toddlers at this point, but it seems to be there's a logic to that thinking. Right, which is why in some families they actually introduce that very early on. Or in Korea, the children start eating kimchi from a young age. Yeah, so a society like Korea where they've been eating this since young, perhaps their sensitivity or their gut is less than someone who doesn't. But I don't think we've proven this in a rigorous way, but there is a theory behind that. But how about yogurt then? That's something that may not be so common here, from young at least. Yogurt has a lot of prebiotics. These are substances that encourage the growth of bacteria. And so that is always a good thing, I feel. But can you actually determine which are the good and the bad bacteria that will eventually grow? I don't think we know. But the benefits of taking yogurt seems to be higher than the risk of developing issues, for example, of lactose intolerance. Because yogurt itself, though it's dairy, it actually is similar to cheese in a sense that there's bacteria within and therefore you, your body probably can digest it a lot better than drinking fresh milk. So uh, yogurt is a good thing. I don't think it's, a, it's something that we should stinge upon. I think like with any diet recommendations, you should just take everything in moderation. Right, okay. So it's not true, is it, that you take yogurt and you have to poop after that? It's for patients who complain of that symptom whereby they eat something and they have to go to the loo. Often it's not driven by the the substance, as in it's not driven by the dairy product itself. What happens in many of these patients is they have a, what we call an exaggerated reflex, right? So your stomach and your intestines, they communicate with one another. The moment you eat something, your stomach stretches, it will communicate with your intestines to start moving things along. Especially patients with irritable bowel syndrome, they have a very sensitive reflex. And so whatever they eat, they feel like it's just running through their body and coming out the other way. But it's not the case. It takes many hours for your food to make its way down. And so what's happening is that there's a very much an exaggerated reflex. So whatever they eat will stimulate their stomach to communicate with their intestines. And what will actually make this reflex stronger will be things like caffeine. It will be things like a high-calorie food. So anything with high calories, like a, a high-fat meal, that will trigger a stronger response. So some patients will tell you that they are intolerant to fatty food because the moment they eat, they have to go to the loo. The dairy product part often is as misconstrued because they often, in my experience, taking the dairy products together with a caffeinated drink. And I suspect it's the caffeine that is driving them to go to the loo and not so much the dairy product. I see. So typically dairy products are not as potent in it. Yes, because it takes a while for the dairy product to actually cause problems. It'll take a few hours. They shouldn't be going to the loo's immediately after taking the dairy product. So you're talking about, say, your patients, especially those with complex cases, and it's really hard to pinpoint which food they should take or avoid. But say for the 
general public, they may have like mild IBS issues. They may not even have gone to the doctor. Any diet tips you can give them? What kind of food like maybe to be more aware of to watch out for? In the literature, there's been many different diets that people have tried to introduce. The low FODMAP diet is very difficult to implement in an Asian diet. And some people have just suggested what we call a FODMAP light diet which means that you're not overly restrictive to every food group, but you try to target the main ones. So I think it's important for me to stress this because this is not a food allergy. You're not supposed to avoid these things. You're supposed to eat them less, right? So an example would be dairy products. We've mentioned this. Beans, onion, garlic, mushrooms. Mushrooms too. They're supposed to be good for health. They're good for health, but they do cause a lot of bloating. Other things would be wheat, right? So wheat is again a very malign food group. Because many people will say they are gluten intolerance. And gluten is a protein that's found in wheat. And often what we've noticed is their symptoms are driven by the wheat itself, the high FODMAP content of the wheat, rather than the gluten protein itself. And therefore, they call themselves gluten intolerant when actually they are not able to tolerate wheat products as a whole. So these will be food groups like white bread, pasta, yellow noodles. These are your major issues. The good thing about Asian diet is that rice is okay. And that's a big part of our staple. Other things like fruits and vegetables, not all of them are the same. My general advice to patients is try to avoid the white color vegetables like cabbage, cauliflowers. They tend to be problematic. The leafy ones tend to be okay. So your spinach, your kangkong, they tend to be okay. Your fruits, the ones that cause more issues would be your stone fruits. So your apples, your pears, things that you can just pluck off the tree and bite. Those are the ones causing issues. Banana is something that people always say is good for bowel movements. Banana doesn't cause bloating or diarrhea. I think banana is actually a good fruit to take. And so I think the danger is when we become too granular, right? We try to restrict everything, but everything in moderation. And the other thing that we always advise patients is when your gut is sensitive, no matter what you eat, you will struggle with some symptoms. And it's not necessarily what you ate that caused your symptoms. And you don't want to restrict yourself to not eating that food group for the rest of your life. And so don't be too restrictive with yourself. If you find that you're feeling a bit better and you want to try out different food groups, it's okay. It's not an allergy, so it's not life-threatening. Maybe, yeah, if that's the case, like you mentioned, when you eat something for a person, to find out which food they can't quite tolerate, what's the guide? Like, how many hours should they wait before they can actually Mm. decide that this is the problem? It can be very challenging to do this because there are a few issues. There's what we call recall bias, right? Patients often do not remember what exactly they ate. And so what we actually try to get to get patients to do sometimes is to do a food diary. So if you write down exactly what you ate uh, and, and be as specific as possible, and then you write when your symptoms start to appear, and we probably need a long period to observe. Like this shouldn't happen just once or twice, but over a long period of time that we have multiple instances where this is reproducible. And in such a situation, then we can probably blame that food group as causing symptoms. But I rarely get my patients to restrict their their diet in such a manner because uh, most of the time, it's not that obvious what is causing the symptoms. When you talk about the FODMAP diet, right, cabbage and cauliflower, those are very common and people eat that quite a lot. And actually, like we mentioned in our earlier episode about the healthy keto diet, you actually eat a lot of that cauliflower rice to replace the cups in your diet. So if you're saying that, that causes problems, it's going to be an issue for some people who want to lose weight and then yet have a very sensitive gut. Yes, that's absolutely true. So patients who are trying to lose weight will find it a lot more challenging if they are also struggling with irritable bowel syndrome. And you realize that these are also the patients who have a certain kind of type A personalities too. So they want to do 
the diet and they want to get their IBS better. So I have a very simple rule when it comes to dietary treatment. I tell my patients, eat whatever you want, as long as you know what's coming your way. And then the next thing is make sure it tastes nice. Because if you're going to go for a hot pot, a mala hot pot, right? And you are you're fearful of your gut symptoms, it's okay to be fearful, but just make sure that mala is worth it. <laughs> if it's a nice one, so you don't want to eat a lousy hot pot and then end up struggling the next day. But if it's good, at least it was worth it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is true. Don't waste the opportunity. <laughs> Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Now back to my conversation with Dr. Andrew Ong, a consultant gastroenterologist with the Singapore General Hospital. So we talked about the vegetables, but earlier you mentioned with cauliflower, we always think of broccoli. Is that better? So broccoli is an interesting one because like, broccoli is one of the examples whereby even within a food item, it, there are variations to it, right? So the broccoli floret actually low in FODMAPs, whereas the broccoli stems high in FODMAPs. So if you're struggling with bloating, you're struggling with diarrhea, what would be useful is for you to actually shave off the stems and just eat the florets. Other useful things that people have tried to tackle the FODMAP issues, for example, if you love garlic, but you really cannot tolerate it because you get a lot of bloating, you can actually cook with garlic oil and to actually preserve the taste of the garlic. Because what causes the symptoms are the garlic molecules that is within the garlic product itself. Interesting. How about mushrooms? I've not found any study that looked at the different kinds of mushrooms. I love mushrooms as well. So I'm not sure whether inoki, shiitake all have different FODMAP content. I suspect they do. But as a whole, mushrooms do cause problems with bloating. And people just don't understand that and they don't think it's that problematic. To, and that's why they continue eating it. If you find that you eat a lot of mushrooms, then do try and reduce it. But I don't think you have to change your diet in a drastic way to totally remove mushrooms. All these things are dose-dependent. So what it means that the less you eat, the less your symptoms would be. But that's only when you have symptoms. La. Otherwise, yes. generally, you don't have to. It's actually good for health. Yes. But if you find that you have bloating after eating certain foods, this mushroom could be a cause, right? Yeah, it could be a cause. But for all these food that causes bloating, the usual time frame is in a few hours, right? So you shouldn't be getting symptoms straight away. It takes time for the food to make its way down to get fermented. So we're talking about at least two to three hours before you start developing symptoms. So if you are developing symptoms immediately after ingesting the mushroom, it might not be the mushroom that's causing the problem. I see. Okay, interesting. I haven't thought of mushroom. I would think of things like beer, maybe. <laughs> People would feel bloated right after drinking. Beer, surprisingly, I don't think beer causes that much bloating. If you drink a lot of it, I'm sure you would. But alcohol causes diarrhea. Alcohol causes a lot of other issues. But most people don't get symptoms in the immediate period after drinking the alcohol. But fizzy drinks or carbonated drinks do cause bloating. So if the beer is, has been standing around for a while, it probably tastes disgusting, but it probably doesn't cause the bloating. <laughs> Alright, so it's not quite the beer, it's just it's, the fizzy yes, part of it. it's the carbonated part of the drink. Okay, so it can be like very healthy sparkling drink as well. Yes, <laughs> very much. <laughs> one of the important things is if you do see a dietitian and you're put into one of these restrictive diets, always make it a point to start to reintroduce groups back. Because what you don't want to do is to deprive yourself of the nutritional benefits of some of these groups. So if, for the example, in the low FODMAP diet, in many countries that do it well, they would always reintroduce every group back to the patient as much as possible without causing symptoms. Because we don't want to deprive our body of some of the health benefits. Other food products that seem to be problematic, fruit juices. Because fruit juices contain a lot of fructose. 
So fructose is a sugar that we have to be really careful because if you look at the ingredients in your ketchups, your mustards, your maple syrups, and, and when you actually use these food to consume, many of them contain fructose syrup of some sort. And your body has a limited ability to absorb fructose. So if whatever your body cannot absorb has to be fermented at some point. And therefore, that will cause symptoms and that will cause diarrhea, bloating, and so on. In such a situation, you're basically overpowering your body to absorb certain sugars. So it's not that you're having the lack of enzyme, nor is it because your body's intolerant of it. It's because you're drinking more than you should. So for example, if you drink a lot of fruit juices, you might struggle with this because the sugars are all in a liquefied state ready to be absorbed. Whereas if you eat a fruit like an apple and an orange in its natural state, you're actually slowing down the release of sugars within into your small intestine. And so you don't struggle with the overpowering your body's ability to absorb. So it's the same with if you keep drinking sugary drinks. Since you mentioned sugary drinks, I think one of the things that people also often forget is artificial sweeteners because they contain sorbitol, which is a, a kind of a carbohydrate that also doesn't get absorbed well by the body. So if you're flushing down Diet Coke in liters a day, you're not only pushing all the carbonated part of the drink into your body, but you're also introducing artificial sweeteners. And therefore, many patients develop diarrhea because of these drinks. That's supposed to be bad for the body. Artificial sweeteners, even though it keeps the sugar off, the best is not to go for it. But that's so difficult. Yes, very difficult. So earlier you mentioned that even with the FODMAP diet, so the recommendation is actually to reintroduce all these foods back, right? So you actually don't lose out on the nutritional value. But when, how do you know when you can reintroduce them back to your diet? So it's, it can be a bit challenging because we don't really know which is the food group that we will, that will cause symptoms for the patient. But we have to do it in a systematic way. So once you've, in, you've removed every food group within the high FODMAP category, you will introduce group by group. So perhaps you will introduce the fructose group. So that means you have the fruits. You might want to introduce that first. And then if that doesn't seem to trigger any symptoms, you can take the next step to introduce another food group and another food group. It's difficult to know what's the best interval without overburdening the patient because bear in mind, they have to come in and out of the hospital multiple times to do this. But I think waiting two to three weeks intervals between introducing a food group seems to be a reasonable way of doing it. So it's not about keeping those foods like out of your life forever? No, I think rarely would you have to keep any food out of your life unless it's a food allergy. I think food intolerances, it's always something that you can take in moderation. I think people confuse that with the allergies because you always hear that I'm gluten intolerant, I'm lactose yes. intolerant, I'm yes. not going to drink milk my whole life kind of thing. Yeah, so I think it's good to understand the differences between an allergy and an intolerance. So an allergy is something that drives the, your immune system to react towards whatever you eat. So if you are allergic to nuts and you take even just traces of it, your body will react in a very dramatic way to it. So you'll develop swelling of your eyes, swelling of your lips, difficulty breathing. And all this is your body's way of reacting because of the immune system that is being triggered. A food intolerance is different in the sense that you eat the food and you develop things like diarrhea, bloating hours later. It's never life-threatening, but it's uncomfortable. And if you have a food allergy, it tends to affect your whole body and it tends to start when you're young because you would have noticed it when you were weaning from your breast milk to formula and then to solid foods. Food intolerances tend to happen just within the gut. It tends to happen later in life. And you tend to have other symptoms too. Like for example, your irritable bowel syndrome patients tend to struggle a lot more with food intolerances. So they tend to have long-standing pain issues, diarrhea issues as well. 
So from what you mentioned, for somebody who has mild issues and maybe perhaps they're not ready to go to the doctor, they might they can actually consider doing some of these things? You can try to alter some of the things that they eat, but it's very difficult to be systematic in a way because in Singapore, we tend to buy our food from outside. Many people don't cook their own and they tend to just, it's more convenient to just buy from the hawker centre and the food courts. And it's very difficult to know what they put in. And so you have to be very careful because, for example, even having a deep fried dish where you have breadcrumbs around the prawn. It's not the prawn driving the symptom, but it's the breadcrumbs because there's wheat within the breadcrumbs. So it's very difficult sometimes to know exactly what drives your symptoms. If you're really interested at removing things from your diet, you probably have to seek a dietitian to help you. Yeah, sounds complicated enough. Yeah, but it's something to think about because you mentioned that it doesn't happen immediately. Yes. Which I've heard some people say that, okay, I developed diarrhea right after, so it must be that food. So it's something to keep in mind as well, to wait a while as well for the food to actually cool Correct. down. Can you share some tips on how to keep our gut healthy? Okay, the microbiome is the population of bacteria that lives within our gut, right? And there's a lot of bacteria that lives within our gut. And what many studies have shown over the years is that a patient with irritable bowel syndrome, they have a different proportion of bacteria, different quantity, different subtypes compared to a healthy person. And the problem is at this point, we're not sure in terms of causality, whether it's the irritable bowel syndrome causing a change in the way the bacteria population is, or is it the bacteria population that causes the irritable bowel syndrome? And maybe it's even a bidirectional thing. So it's a two-way relationship. But what people have observed over time is that, for example, treating a patient with probiotics sometimes works. It doesn't work all the time, but it works sometimes. So there must be a biological basis for that. And we know that the bacteria inside your gut works very closely with the lining of your gut as well as the, with the nerves of your gut. So by changing the bacterial composition, it potentially is a treatment option. But I do not think, I, from the current state of research that we have around the world, that, we, that it's prime time to introduce therapies to really change the gut bacteria. Other countries have done interventions like fecal transplant, whereby they bring someone else's microbiome into your microbiome. And the study results have been patchy at best, but it seems to be a promising signal that something is in the works for future treatment options. But before that happened, is there anything that people can do? How about probiotics, right? People buy them all the time. Do they work? I have half a mind uh, about this topic because probiotics is, is a very simplistic way to think about the, the human microbiome, right? So just by popping a pill that you can change the large proportion of bacteria within your gut is an oversimplification of the whole thing. So my stand with my patients is if it works for you, by all means, take it. But don't put all your hope into it because many times if your condition is bad enough, you're not going to get away just by taking probiotics. Some people are trying to prevent IBS. I'm not sure if you can actually do that. Is that possible? Like even just taking a daily supplement or even just drinking Yakult? I mean, drinking Yakult is probably good for your gut anyways. But taking probiotics to prevent gut issues, there's not much evidence for that to be a useful strategy. I, I think having a good exercise regime and having a good sleeping cycle probably would do a lot more good to you than taking probiotics. So the basic advice of having a balanced lifestyle. Yes, very Eat much. Eat well and exercise and sleep well. Yes. When it comes to the gut microbiome, I've seen so many, like it includes even having a pet that can actually change your gut microbiome and keep yourself healthy. But what do you think of that? The problem in many of these studies is you don't really know where the direction of causality is, right? Because there are many proponents that of the brain-gut axis that believe changing the brain structure will change the microbiome. So perhaps if your mood improves when you have a pet, 
it can change the way your gut bacteria behaves? Or is it because your gut bacteria changes and that therefore improves your mood? No one really knows which way the effect is. And so what I always tell my patients and what I've learned over time is to be as open-minded as I can. And therefore, if they say they feel better with a pet, by all means, have a pet. Because it's very difficult for us to prove which way the mechanisms are. Thanks for your time, Andrew. Okay, thank you so much, Joyce. Well, that's a wrap for Health Check, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Joyce Teo. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles, we have links in the podcast text description below. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.